So did you have any trick-or-treaters last night? Did you have get the opportunity to give away any candy? Not one. Did you buy some candy? Did you prepare? No. Oh, so <laughs> so they all would have been given tricks. Okay, but so your porch light was off and all that, so it you was. weren't even planning on it. Okay, no. okay. I planned on it. I I drove home. Me and Dell drove home as quickly as we could and early from uh, down south uh, in Austin, Minnesota, just to get back home before dark and make sure that we were. So I was I, because I I want to be that figure in the neighborhood. I want parents to know that their kids are safe. We'll even give them candy and all that nonsense. So anyway, it ended up one group of three came and knocked on the door and it was well lit and everything in front of the house, in front of the apartment of uh, folks, you know, you, you know where I live, but, mm -hmm. but for folks who don't know, just imagine like a, uh, a like a brownstone building, like a stoop and, and all that. So they were, uh, the, the one group of three came up and knocked on the door and uh, got some candy, but that was the only group. And we're seeing all of these kids, some look older, some look younger, walking all up and down the sidewalk on the other side of the street all night long. Even when I opened the door for the one group of trick-or-treaters that did come and as they're getting candy, I'm seeing other uh, folks look and, you know, saying, oh, there's another house, but they never came. So what, what I believe is that the folks, the parents told their kids, just don't, don't come on this side of the street. I think that's what has happened, unfortunately. Have you gotten any history on this building? Is it haunted? Oh, Does it have a history? Well, I mean, hell, that that would uh, inspire them to come, right? They they should they should want to come more on Halloween. Not right? when I was a kid, I would be. Mm -mm. You would you would stay away from the the haunted build or the the spooky thing. Hundred percent. Anyway, I I hate that. <laughs> I hate that this is seen. You know where I live is spooky or or dangerous or where, or maybe I should be grateful. But anyway, I just wanted to start by saying I bought all this damn candy. <laughs> <laughs> for the kids to enjoy and, you know, trick-or-treat, all that. And somebody's mama is telling them not to come over on this side of the street. That has to be the only reason, because they were there. They were they were passing all night, all up and down on the other side of the street. And it's residential. It's not like they have to cross heavy traffic to get over here. And I'm I'm not trying to feel, uh, trying to seem like I'm salty because the kids didn't want my candy. But it, it was hard not to notice. Garrett, you're it was gonna, hard not to notice. You're going to have chocolate through Valentine's Day now. <laughs> Well, we'll we'll see. Um, you see, that's the trick, though. You have to buy the candy that you like as well. <laughs> that's all I get. <laughs> all right. Well, for this week's downbeat, Scott, I wanted to honor now one of the official greats, not only within the culture, not only among Black folks, but according to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the one and only Jay-Z was inducted since we last recorded alongside mm. a few others, L.O. Mm -hmm. Cool J, uh, Gil Scott Heron, but uh, L.O., uh, sorry, Hove, Jay-Z, had uh, some really inspiring words at his acceptance speech, and I wanted to uh, share, get us started with that. And, you know, Tata, sitting there, so Tata, I'll go to Tata and be like, yo, I'm the best time telling you I'm the greatest. Well, one of the greatest. I don't want no problems at LL, right? One of the greatest, one of the greatest. And I'll go to Tata, yo, I'm the greatest. And Tata be like, yeah, young, you are the greatest. And then, um, you know, I, I look back at some of those raps and it was like, oh, stop thinking, you're making it, son. I'm breaking the break. It was trash. <laughs> But somehow we knew. And then I went and recorded a demo with, shout out to Clark Kent, Brooklyn DJ, legendary Clark Kent. And I recorded a demo and I went to every single record, um, 
record company, and you know what they say, right? That shit is trash. But the audacity of hip hop, we, we didn't believe them. I, for not one second, got depressed. I, for one second, I didn't change my course. It was like, we're gonna create our own company, you know? That's hip hop. That almost wants to choke me up when I really think about that and apply that to the countless stories, not only from hip hop, but just from black culture in general, maybe even some of the Western classical stories. If we want to go back to the 1930s, imagine what Florence Price, William Grant, still in them, even in the folks even before that had to deal with folks not even affirming their humanity, much less their music. And mm -hmm. when when Jay-Z says they just he he and uh, and Ty Ty, one of one of his rider dies, didn't believe them that you know when 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 their music was called trash you know didn't believe them and considered themselves among the greatest anyway that's that's something that's really something to me and i think there's a lot to be said for that self affirmation even if it's not there uh actually even if the music is trash as as uh jay-z was speaking to just that belief in self and and speaking things into existence you you can't you can't overlook that at all and now you know this this rapper who consider himself the greatest so long ago, even though the music was trash. Now he is arguably, at least when it comes to hip hop, the greatest. When you talk to most hip hop fans, it's it's Hove, it's it's Jay-Z who's up there. I mean, for you, how, how important is confidence to uh, the way you approach music and, and work, especially as a, as a radio host? Do you consider that a vital ingredient? It's everything. It's everything. Confidence is everything. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I've I've showed you that Eddie Izzard uh, bit of comedy where he talks about, you know, um, presenting something, being a public speaker mm -hmm. is 80% how you look, mm. like 15%. You know, so like, like how you look at, how you say it, 15% is how you look, and the last is what you're actually saying. Okay. So if you're passionate and you stand behind it and you're invested then people go with you yeah. more readily. Yeah, yeah. And it was definitely that way in acting. Yeah, 100%. But the important thing about this is the fact that he was producing what he called trash later on. Right, <laughs> right, right. What he called, right. <laughs> but he kept working, though. Mm -hmm. And that's the key is that, of course, you're going to get better or you're going to get more refined mm -hmm. or find new, new areas of your work. Yeah. How should confidence measure up against... Uh, what I'll call institutional aff affirmation. So not only did he have to deal with some of the streets saying that his street, uh, his music was trash, he would make his way to the studios, to the producers, and they would they say, would say the, the the same thing. What do you think about the balance? It's one thing for you know one of your friends to say, oh, that ain't nothing, but for you to work so hard and get somewhere and they swat it down as well, that has to be an even huger mountain to climb. Or Or maybe not. There are some people who take what their friends or folks who are close to them more seriously than mm -hmm. what the, the the folks would say. What do, you, what do you think about that? It makes me think of Tchaikovsky. Um, he was really hard on all of his music mm -hmm. uh, all throughout his career. And when he wrote his first piano concerto, the guy that he dedicated it to, he took it and showed it to him. And the guy was like, do this over. Do, do <laughs> said, more. start all the way right. over. You know, and <laughs> that was an instance where Peter found his backbone and he went, no, I, I like this. And I'm going to put this out. And when it premiered, 
the the finale, the fourth movement was repeated for an encore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have just, that confidence in yourself, yeah. even even when it feels like everybody's against you, like the person you're dedicating this music to. Mm-hmm. Um, your own mind is telling you your shit. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, huge shout out to Hove for entering the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you think they'll have to change the name? of the award because it's not rock the music and roll hall of or, fame. i mean do, do you think that would be worth it is that a a hill worth dying on should should we care if it's called the rock and roll or the music or whatever hall of fame don't we have individual halls of fame though well but the, you know have this one is, halls of fame <laughs> but this is the big one mm-hmm. you know th- this is the one that people aspire to does, yes does that name matter well because we we talk about the nuance of the word classical you know does the phrase rock and roll need to be updated when it comes to what is in essence just the american music hall of fame you know do, do we need to worry about the name rock and roll that's something that i've been thinking about as well have you yeah hmm. i'd have to think about it some right now uh, it wouldn't break my heart if it got changed. Sure, sure. go I ahead. Mean, well, I mean, it's it's not about feelings, but you know, I mentioned LL Cool J, Hove, Gil Scott Hare, and these aren't rock and roll artists, but their music was so impactful that it belongs in mm-hmm. that space. It, you know, so I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Maybe, maybe that's maybe sure. that's coming. Or, it could it could use an update. Sure. Yeah. Well, again, uh, huge shout out to Hove. You know, uh, Obama um, and Beyonce and. Uh, uh, Blue Ivy gave introductory introductory speeches, as did Dave Chappelle. But mm. I've been I've been wanting to talk about that, but uh, not not this podcast, right. <laughs> at least not this week. Uh, but uh, but and uh, but before I hit the drop, before we get into the music and and get on with it, extra maybe extra long downbeat this week. The word audacity was mm-hmm. used. Jay Z used the word audacity, and every time I hear that word, I think of our former colleague, Brian Newhouse, because one of the things he told me uh, back before Triloquy was its own thing when it belonged to NPR, he was like, you know, this has to go on and I, and I have to, you know, pave the way for ownership of this for you because you had the audacity to create and maintain this project. And when I tell that story to some people, like the use of the word audacity in reference to this show and, and its path toward uh, independence, they, they uh, you know, sense that it should be offensive or something like using that word. But I, I appreciated that. I, I like that he described us and this project in this way because it do take nerve. It do mm. take nerve every single week, don't it? <laughs> and a lot of pushing. There's a lot, a of, lot pushing. of pushing. Yep, yep, all of that stuff. So, um, and when I when I think about you know again to loop this back around to what Hove said, talking about being the greatest, you know, I, I'm fresh off of a, a concerto. You know, not my first concerto. Played stages everywhere, um, elevated. I think even needing the bassoon in certain spaces, no, no shade to anybody, but you know, Garrett McQueen is on stages even without the bassoon and, and, and that's fine. That's great. Triloquy has been affirmed by the New York times and countless other publications, even funding organizations. I mean, as, as, as far as I'm concerned, what we got here is among the greatest period. Mm-hmm. And we have to name that, don't we? I believe we do anyway. Name it. Yep. Let's get into Oh, 
McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thank you so much for showing up. This is Opus 123. I, I forgot. <laughs> is it? I think this is 123. If this isn't 123, it'll be correct in the title. So thank you <laughs> for being here. We're, we're approaching halfway through season three. We're, we're, we're really doing it. We're, we're getting there. And you know what? We couldn't do it without all of you. So thank you for returning to Opus 123, I think. I'm pretty sure this is 123. Um, returning listeners, thank you. Triloquy is a part of the mix. It's a part of the ecosystem. It's a part of the conversation of decolonizing classical music. And we couldn't do it without your continued support. To new listeners, this is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and applies it in a way that it hasn't been traditionally. We take different ideas when it comes to uh, the idea of what's classic. We tie it with conversations that actually engage the world, at least larger parts of it, all toward decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on Triloquy, be sure to visit Triloquy.org. You can also make your contribution to Triloquy. We really appreciate that support as well. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. For more information, visit shuttleworthfoundation.org. I would also love to send a huge thanks of support um, from, uh, from the Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul. The Springboard for the Arts mission is to support artists with the tools to make a living and a life and to build just and equitable communities full of meaning, joy, and connection. Huge thank you for your support. For more information on Springboard for the Arts, their website is springboardforthearts.org. Got a lot to get into today. Very special guest, Ozzy Cargyle in the third movement. But for now, let's get into movement one. Got a uh, hometown hero or maybe a former hometown hero of yours to celebrate to get us started this week. I am going to send a sharp to the one and only Thomas Wilkins. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, uh, We've. I'm sure we've talked about it before, but did you ever get to uh, interview Thomas Wilkins or have any run-ins or conversations with him uh, during his time in Omaha? In I, Omaha? Never, I, never, I never got to see him conduct. And uh, at that stage in my career, I was just doing the morning show. Mm -hmm. So it would have been the arts news director who would have done all those interviews. So mm -hmm. I completely missed the train on that. Uh, Victor Yampolsky was there until 2004. And... Uh, I moved here in 2006, and that last year and a half, two years, I was doing everything but going to an orchestra. Sure, I, was I being, hear that. I was a bad dog. I hear that. Or oh, you are you. Anyway, uh, let's let's start light. <laughs> um, it's interesting, Thomas Wilkins and Omaha, the Omaha Symphony. It's it's making me think of some of the things that. Uh, the radio station there is doing W uh, KVNO, KVNO, rather. KVNO mm -hmm. um, uh, Opera Omaha is uh, one of the latest signatories to the pledge formed by the Black Opera Alliance. So Omaha for years now and currently in this time is sort of leaning forward when it comes to equity and the arts. And it, it seems like an exciting time for, for Omaha. I'm glad to see it. I'm glad to see it because to tell you the truth from what I knew of it, it was moving very slowly yeah. in that direction. Yeah, well, it, it looks like it's going somewhere. Anyway, this isn't actually about Omaha. Um, it, uh, it's about the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I'm reading here from BSO.org. It says, Thomas Wilkins conducts Coleridge, Taylor, Wooten, and Ellington featuring electric bassists 
Victor Wooten. Um, when I saw this article, it was really surprising to me, and I wanted to bring it in because Boston, in many ways, has a reputation of being one of those traditional cities in the worst way of saying it. You know, one mm -hmm. one of the, I don't like advertisements anyway, but every time that Sam Adams commercial with that, uh, your cousin from Boston from comes Boston. on, I am sure to mute it. I don't even, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I've been to Boston. A lot of, I won't say most black people, I won't make a generalization, but all the black folks I know <laughs> have very specific stories about the city of Boston, how problematic it is. You've, you've You've heard I've about heard Boston's stories. race. Okay. So for their symphony, you know, one of the, the whitest of the white spaces to feature not only Samuel Coleridge Taylor, but Victor Wooten and Duke Ellington, that was that raised an eyebrow for me. And and I paid attention. These concerts uh were were last week. I'll just read a little bit of uh, a little bit here. It says BSO artistic advisor for education and community engagement, Thomas Wilkins, was joined by composer and electric bass virtuoso Victor Wooten making his BSO debut. A multi-Grammy winner, consistently ranked among the greatest bases in the world, Wooten puts his own electric chops to the test in, in, in his concerto. We'll, we'll listen not to that concerto, but a little bit of uh, Victor Wooten's music to transition out of this. But one thing I wanted to talk about again, with this being uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra being one of those institutions in a city like Boston, to see even Duke Ellington on the program, I think mm -hmm. is a considerable step forward. When I was very, you know, my first weeks, I certainly not even a month yet, my first weeks as a, uh, a host and radio programmer down in Tennessee, you know, I was trying to bust it up even back then. And the first thing that I sort of had a question about that I ended up airing that I was nervous to air was actually a piece of music by Duke Ellington. I think the Boston, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, they performed uh, The River, The River Suite by Duke Ellington. I think one of the works, uh, the work I was trying to put on and I wasn't sure about was uh, black brown and beige one of you mm -hmm. know one of my all-time favorites but it, but the 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 so-called jazz aesthetic is still very much there and it just it it made me question even some of the weird contemporary percussion only stuff was like for me oh that's fine i'll just put that on but the fact that there was a saxophone there or there was a trap set there made me made me question hmm. how, how much thinking have you done at the intersection and in, in that gray area of jazz and Western classical, considering that you've been radio hosts on, on both camps, mm -hmm. are there tunes that you could see having worked for both types of shows that, that you've done the classical and the jazz? I, you know, I didn't do it for very long. And when I was doing it, everything was separate. Mm -hmm. um, jazz started at 10 o'clock at night, hard start. Yeah. Right? And so classical up until then. Yeah. And, I was the jazz music program director, and that's what I was concerned with. Yeah, yeah. I, but, so, but yeah, I do, I'm, I do think there's music in that gray area. Shout out to Todd Steed, uh, my first radio boss, uh, and he he was on Triloquy uh, last year. That's something we would talk about all the time. You know, mm -hmm. especially at a dual format station where you have classical and jazz. Are there pieces that could work for any day part, you know, and even including mm -hmm. uh, the jazz? And, you know, there's lots of Nina Simone stuff. We were listening to her mm -hmm. over dinner. But I think, you know, Duke Ellington's music is a great example of of that area. And uh, after spending some time in New York and talking to Pete, you know, another member of the Triloquy uh, family, shout out to Pete Collin. 
he was talking and complaining about jazz at Lincoln Center being too classical in that way, mm. you know, leaning on the Count Basie and the Duke Ellington and the Mingus and and all of that stuff. So, you know, maybe it's time for us to push the Ellingtons and all the stuff of that general early 20th century jazz into the classical realm. Mm. The Boston Symphony Orchestra has done it. And if they can do it, I mean, <laughs> it should be anybody yeah. who's willing to do it. I can see it. But, you know, it, it was a different time then, too, because you mentioned mm -hmm. about the things that KVNO is doing now. Uh, they pro produce the sound of 13 with you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would hate to make an assumption now and be wrong because it seems like there is movement happening. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's I think it's fun to think about. Um, I don't know. I think there's a deeper conversation than we have time for today, maybe again about the idea of jazz. And as we, you know, continue to reframe our ideas around the phrase classical music, that jazz is just American classical. We, we, we just I feel like we need to get there, especially considering the Western European classical music that drew from it and respected it uh, enough to put it into their stuff. And these works are at the top of the canon. And those I'm are thinking, venerated. I'm thinking yeah. about Ravel. I'm, I'm thinking about um, Darius Mio, you know, all those folks. So even in the mood, you you know, you were playing some uh, hmm. uh, some organ in the mood earlier. <laughs> I feel like that what, what do you feel like if you play if, if if in the mood came on, you know, your show that was on one of your playlists, would you really get email complaints? I mean, that is one of those classic tunes. Let me set point. this up for you. During the fun drive, we had a premium that was Eric Kunzel and the Cincinnati Pops doing like my silver screen classics or something. Sure. And it was doing it was really popular. And we played a bunch of stuff off of it. And one night at about 630, we popped on Sing, Sing, Sing. You know, sing, sing, sing. It's it's, oh, it's, a, yeah, it's a romp. Yeah. It is a romp of a big band tune. And we had volunteers doing the Lindy Hop in the membership room. Oh, so they're ready. People were coming unglued and the phones lit up with people saying, turn that off. Oh, turn that off. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I thought you said the phones were about to light up and say, oh, yeah, this is it. No, people people calling in and saying, "We this is not classical. Oh, my gosh. People give me such a headache. I am not headache. lying. People give me such a headache. Let me, you see, you, you've made me think of something. Let me find this one spot in Sing, Sing, Sing. Before I left L.A., the... Hollywood Bowl Orchestra had a uh, an audition. Oh, this part towed the bassoons up. Oh, they couldn't play this. <laughs> you know that bass. Bum -bum 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 -bum. Uh -huh. yeah. But they could not play that. That was knocking everybody out, and I thought it was so... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, and I bring that up because if this sort of music, if that American aesthetic, see, now I'm getting pissed because you'd have told me they said uh, cut it off <laughs> during the pledge drive. Yep. How much better of a musician would all those bassoonists be who didn't know how to swing that bass line be if that was a part of the teaching, if that was a part of the pedagogy, and dare I say, a part of what we listen to on radio and in orchestral spaces. We would be better rounded individuals, better musicians, and have more of a, a taste, a flavor, a grounding in what is American classical. I was blown away. Number one, because the call- That shocks me. Because the call happened. And number two, because it's three minutes. Right, so, you, so your whole fucking day is ruined because three minutes- uh, 
See, you didn't know it was going this direction, did you? <laughs> Let's go ahead and move on from this. But <laughs> shout out to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and you know, you mentioned the Cincinnati Pops. There's also the Boston Pops, so sure. they so they could easily push all of that so-called jazz over to the Boston. All oh, y'all play that stuff. So I, even locally, I think it's significant for the Boston Symphony Orchestra to have put on that sort of black orchestral music. I hate to be on here giving them any flowers, but, mm. but you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So a sharp <laughs> nice. to the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Um, I want to transition out of this accidental with a little music by Victor Wooten. I'm sure that uh, guitar, that bass uh, can share was really incredible. I'll uh, keep an eye out for that recording. But uh, uh, oh, this actually works out pretty good. I, I picked out a tune called You Can't Hold No Groove featuring <laughs> Victor Wooten because those bassoonists sure couldn't hold no groove. Shout out to Remy and all of y'all. Y'all know y'all was there getting eliminated <laughs> in the first round. <laughs> See, I had won my job with Detroit already, so I didn't even have to bother. I'm talking shit. Anyway, here's a little bit of You Can't Hold No Groove by Victor Wooten. Congrats on your uh, being able to perform. Uh, in that space and to uh, get a broader audience. Shout out to you. You Can't Hold No Groove, Victor Wood. You don't have a bass, do you? An electric bass? I have a baritone, but I don't have a bass, no. We gotta, maybe we gotta fix. I feel like I, I've tried those ukulele sized basses that mm -hmm. you plug up into an amp with and, the big rubber bands. Yeah, those are those are those are fun, but I don't know. A part of me wants a a big electric bass. The stand, the uh cl the so-called classical bass, you know, it, mm. it doesn't have those frets. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that's what I need at this at this age. Yeah, and Victor's great. I caught on to him with Bella Fleck and the Fleck tones. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so this is an artist you know. Yeah, he's oh, great. Yeah. I'm so okay. So you we we already established that in Omaha, uh when Thomas Wilkins and everybody else was there, you weren't trying to go see an, an orchestra concert mm -mm. with seeing Victor Wooten's name on a program get you into the orchestra hall or what would it have or would it now? I've seen him play. Oh, oh but yeah. I'm saying with an orchestra. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, I'd go. I'd go I mean, hear that. Yeah, concert. that's what I'm saying. So, and an orchestra would get your money if you saw Victor Wooten's name on the on the bill. Now it would. Back then, when you're talking about uh, like 2004, sure, sure, sure. No, I was doing other things. Yeah. So, I'm, <laughs> well, yeah, right, right. I'm sure. Uh, I, I was practicing and doing other. I wasn't even there. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, but but my point is maybe. You know, the Boston Symphony, somebody in the office is thinking about something. Because if you're not trying to go see mm -hmm. uh, Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, but you see Victor Wooten there and you'll go, somebody realizes that and understands that. And mm -hmm. again, please email me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see the Boston Symphony Orchestra as one of the whitest of them all. So if they have Victor Wooten there, mm. in addition to music I by Duke Ellington, yeah. and then, you know, we keeping one arm on the Western European music. So, you know, they describe uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor in that uh, in that piece as an Anglo, uh, what did they say, Anglo-African or something? That that seemed problematic to me, but <laughs> let's, celebra let's celebrate them while we can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know if I like that Anglo, Anglo-African. Isn't me, it Afro-English? Let me find it just so y'all not saying I'm lying. 
Uh, it says, yeah, Anglo-African composer Samuel Coleridge Taylor came to the international prominence in 1898, and they talk about uh, the Song of Hiawatha that yeah. uh, they they performed anyway. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> Anglo-African. Anyway, mm. tell me about your accidental. What you got this week? <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to composer Elijah Daniel Smith, who, as we are recording here right now, is having some of his own music performed in his hometown for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, a premiere is something that he, here is something he calls a dream come true. And the reason why I wanted to highlight this article is because we have talked a lot about on this podcast about removing some of the qualifi qualifications to get into schools. Mm -hmm. You know, your SATs or ACTs, you know, um, removing barriers, right? Right, right. So when he first starts studying classical and he goes to get into uh, the, um, let me see if I can find the school, the Chicago High School for the Arts. Mm -hmm. When he started there, he couldn't even read music. Oh, wow. Wow. So... Talk about jumping in with both feet and really immersing yourself in it. Um, and I think that that has helped to produce a really interesting composer because mm -hmm. uh, not only is he um, uh, writing music for orchestras or for small chamber groups, but he's also doing more electronic-oriented sort of uh, dreamscape things to go along with visual projects. Yeah, yeah. So really, it's a multifaceted, he's a multifaceted artist. And I was interested in the, uh, I don't have any recordings yet, obviously, of his piece that he's premiering tonight, The Scions of Atlas. But the way that he describes it is how you might unfold a map when you're going on a trip. Yeah. So... Uh, that's what that's what piqued my interest about keeping an eye out for this music because the idea of building as the piece of music goes, I think, is um, it's an interesting idea that I think a lot of people, regardless of their skills or their background, can grasp onto and and follow. Yeah, we we listened to uh, some of Elijah's music uh, earlier this evening before we start table. We'll 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 have a, a bit of it today, uh, but I think. Something you said, I want I want to highlight. You talked about how Elijah couldn't even read music when he uh, started school and, mm -hmm. and and began his journey. I think more and more with uh, the composers, the young contemporary composers of this new music, we're seeing more of those untraditional pathways toward uh, the concert hall, toward towards these spaces, right. and that in itself, I think, makes the music field, the the whole ecosystem, more interesting. If everyone's coming from the same place, if the origin for everyone is the same, you're not going to have um, as diverse, and I'm not even talking about race, I'm talking about just aurally diverse, right. thematically right. diverse music in the spaces. They're talking about um, this new Marvel movie that's uh, coming out. I, I forget the Eternals. The, the Eternal. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not huge on that universe, but I'm, I'm thinking about that because what the Marvel Universe has done a great job of showing is that there are different origins for all of these different types of characters and mm -hmm. how they intersect, or maybe they never intersect. Or so. So anyway, I, I really wanted to to highlight that because I think it's so incredible how we're seeing more of these so-called non-traditional paths, and we have to even stop saying that because the the road to music is very broad, even orchestral music. So, um, so I I, I think that's a a, a really 
really cool thing to continue to see. You know, uh, Marcus Norris, who was on uh, a few weeks back, and I went and played his piece in Chicago a couple weeks ago. That's his story as well. He came up through making mixtapes and writing beats for rappers right. and, and all of that. So the more, again, the the, the more diverse we, uh, the, the diverse stories we see, the better the music field is going to be. Also on this program tonight. Um... And that's, that's tonight, tonight. Yeah, tonight, tonight. Okay, so the day before, yesterday, for um, Nat- listening. Natalie Yoakum and Jesse Montgomery's music is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an all-black program. There's also a piece on there by Ted Hearn. Um, I should also mention that Jesse Montgomery begins her three-year tenure as the orchestra's Mead composer in residence this season. And you know, Natalie Yoakum... Uh, oh, is a member you. of a that... uh, uh, member of Flutronics, who we talked about, I think last week or the or the week before last. So all kind of folks doing incredible stuff. I want to read a little bit from this uh, article. The, I'm reading from blockclubchicago.org. Um, it, it, it says here, speaking of the piece by Elijah, Scions of an Atlas, a 21st century take on a Baroque concerto grosso performed by a 13-piece ensemble was commissioned by the orchestra to kick off its 2021-2022 season. So... What do you think? I don't think that language, as we talk about diversifying the spaces and new sounds, new ideas, I think we have to have the courage to let go of some of this traditional uh, language that some of us may be used to, but doesn't help anybody. If if you were, you know, I mean, e- even you don't even pretend to be someone else. When you see something described as a Baroque concerto grosso, I'm sure you understand that you can explain that to someone, but you wouldn't explain that to someone using music theory terms. You would say something that most people could understand. And I think the little dust in the corner there is that we have to get used to using normal language because that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't get anybody new into the concert hall. The phrase that you said was, who is that for? And we know who it's for. They're trying to hit the traditional audience here while also attracting the younger audience. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. Concerto Grosso might not be known by... Uh, the the garden variety listener of our age, but the person who's been going to these concerts for decades, they know that. But do they? See, I feel like we pretend that these people. I'm throwing them a little bit. Really? Of bail. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fine. That's fine. I've done a lot of pre-concert talks. Okay. I've hosted a lot of classical radio. The tried and true listeners, you know, sometimes don't know this language, and and even so, you know. My point was that we have to use language that's closer to the ground or, or closer to today, closer to modern that's sensibilities fair. to get these folks in. But, that's fair. You know, as, as I'm thinking about my uh, my uh, uh, not my Twitter bio, uh, my my pin tweet. You know, uh, folks love to say, "Oh, I don't understand rap. Uh, I don't like rap because I can't understand what they're saying." X Y Z. My point with my pin tweet is that at the end of the day, most people, certainly not in the moment, and certainly not with a piece of music you're unfamiliar with, understand each and every aspect of what's going on in that piece of music. You know, you don't understand that either. Truth. Okay. So anyway, I'm chasing the rabbit <laughs> off the trail there, That's but a, no, I just I just want to make I, sure that we're you know highlighting that that. That's language that we have to consider when we're trying to promote these concerts and to to get folks interested in it. And so, you know, just trying to play the devil's advocate and show the other side of the coin, maybe that was conscious to try to reach out to the traditional listener or the the long-time listener. How about that? I'm going to— I don't know. And, and, you know, the the whole accessibility thing and respectability of it all is discussed here. I'm going to read Smith, a black man, you know, they have to— What? I, it doesn't even make me mad. It just makes me laugh. They're like, just in case you didn't know, 
<laughs> we just want to make sure you know we aren't yeah. racist. We aren't racist. Look, this is a black man. Anyway, it says Smith, a black man, says shot arts reinforce how important it is to keep the arts accessible to everyone. He says, I think for a long time, the term high arts, which is kind of a problematic term to begin with, but it was one that was basically put up deliberately to create barriers and to create the separation between art made by white people and then everybody else. Mm. So, you know, when we have the conversation and talk about who who is this for, even in the language describing the piece of music or describe, uh, describing the concerts, if we're going to call that out, if we're going to call that history, that very true history out, we have to be able to pinpoint it in the present. And, you know, maybe it's a, a weird hill to die on to say, oh, we shouldn't use phrases like Baroque Concerto Grosso. But I, I, as I'm just constantly critiquing and finding the fine points, that's one of those things. What if you use different language there that didn't make someone's eyes glaze over who didn't spend years studying music theory and music history. I just think it's mm. important um, to, to note. So shout out to you, Elijah. Congratulations. I hope you'll come on Triloquy someday, <laughs> despite my redded, uh, my mouth a little bit. Anyway, uh, we're going to hear uh, music by composer Elijah Daniel Smith in the second movement. But to transition, uh, we're just going to uh, get a little bit of one of his newer works, at least what's on, uh, or older works, rather, what's on his website. You wanted to do uh, Parahelion? That's right. All right, let's listen to a little of Parahelion by Elijah Daniel Smith to get us to our final accidental. there performed by the fuse quartet saxophone quartet scott mm. what's the name of this podcast Triloquy. you okay. said that you were gonna hold okay. your comments okay no i want to hear from you mm. let's not pretend okay i hate i hate doing this because it sounds like i'm shitting on on these composers and i'm not but i'm, I'm trying to be real I'm, I'm trying to bring some realness to western classical music and classical spaces I have the uh, intellectual, emotional, musical intelligence, sensibility, and openness to hear a lot in that music and really appreciate it. The first time you played it for me earlier today, I described it as sounding like traffic, not because I'm trying to be shady or say right. anything. I just assumed that must be something that a composer from a large city like Chicago is thinking about when you put four saxophones together and uh, the, there's that sort of dissonance, you know, they're that close in mm -hmm. pitch, but far enough. And mm -hmm. I, I think it creates a really interesting sound and something that I, I would love to explore. But let's face it, <laughs> it's going to be challenging for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, you know, uh, I, I, this feels icky to me because music that is challenging, quote unquote, is typically the music that I ride for, and and I ride for this, you know, and uh, I, I honor the work Elijah Daniel Smith is doing. You aren't putting this on your show. Even if you had the power to program, you aren't putting this on your show, or are you? No. Okay, so how, how, how are we gonna uh, support composers 
who have mu- who have music uh, of this sort of aesthetic that sounds like this, whatever word you want to use, challenging, whatever. What are the spaces? What are the ways in which we can support if you know we're admitting that most folks who who uh, who's you know the audiences that we work for you know work in front of mm-hmm. wouldn't get it or, or wouldn't really be able to to grab on what, what what is the space to support and honor this sort of music? See now I'm going to answer and it's going to be the wrong answer because you talk about not wanting this sort of music to be the side piece sure. or the accompaniment yeah. or the little part of the specialty programming or right yeah, yeah. but. Where else do you put it? You have to start somewhere. Yeah. So that's what I would do first is the is a, a, a show that features nothing but quote unquote challenging pieces of music. Mm. And I've been trying to, and, and the reason why I'm, I'm listening to this is because I'm trying to get away from listening to nothing but things that are pleasing. Right. That are, um, you, well, you mentioned about the dissonance, like they're, they're, the tones being just far enough apart to create an interesting sound mm-hmm. i liked it better in the headphones yeah than i did you can the really speakers. hear that crunch yeah yeah so now now i'm looking for it yeah uh i, I feel bad I, folks who follow this podcast know what we're about and what we're doing but the, the further along i get in my work it's not that i'm giving up or or, or making you know, I don't know. Let me say something else about about this. Go piece. ahead. So the way that the the instruments play together, they're in creating creating those quote unquote interesting combinations. Yeah, however you and want sounds. again, whatever word you want to use. Right. So the first few seconds of it, you kind of go, you know, it's like looking into the sun or something. But as you listen to it, it starts to form its own means of comforting you. You find your own things in it that you go oh now this is kind of cool about it though Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that for me i'm finding is the is the key to stick with it (laughs) just stay with it look goddess knows that on my own time i listen to a lot of weird shit Mm -hmm. okay i do I, i stand for it Anyone uh, who listened to me, my radio show down in Knoxville knows that the the so-called weird music had plenty of space. Mm-hmm. I, I honor it. So, you know, I challenge everyone listening to this, you know, not only the music of Elijah Daniel Smith, you know, whatever living composer whose music you find a little something, fill in the blank. I challenge you to spend a little bit more time with it and to, you know, the composers. I challenge you to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, accept, you know, all reactions to your music because not everyone is as progressive, forward-thinking weirdo like us. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and I think there, there, there has to, there has to be some gray area in between. I think you know the scale from one to ten, it needs the one and it needs the ten. And I and I sit very proudly on whichever end you want to put me on the the one or the ten, but. I also can't help but to think about the four or fives and sixes. And it's not my job. It's no one's job to placate to them. Um, but let's at least be honest about the conversations we put around this music. And if it's a little weird for somebody, if it's, if it's a little crunchy, let's just say that and explore that part of the conversation instead of steering clear of anything that might be offensive or yeah. might, but you know, because the, the, the music deserves the conversation. It, it deserves the space. It deserves, I'm not saying uh, it, uh, is subject to 
uh, dissecting and conversation. I think it deserves it mm. because there's so much noise in the world when you talk about social media, the advertisements that I hate, X, Y, and Z. You know, we have to take every bit of art we can that is worth uh, having a conversation about like this and, and being honest in those conversations. So again, shout out to Elijah Daniel Smith. Looking forward to uh, hearing hearing more from him. Congratulations. In the years. All right, one more, uh, one more quick accidental before we get into the second movement uh i usually give this writer the flat and the buzzer so <laughs> we know who's coming up yep the one and only norman lebrecht first and foremost okay for folks who don't know norman lebrecht is classical music's just classical music's motherfucker i'll say it i had to cuss him out one time for uh weeks i forget what but what was uh, the problem that i had with him that week in the triloquy but um, he's one of those writers who ruffles a lot of feathers, definitely on the more conservative side of things and is unafraid to to let people know. What are your opinions on platforming Norman Lebrecht's uh, articles, pieces, thoughts, opinions? Are you one of the let's ignore it all, whatever he's over there? Are you no, we have to highlight what he's doing. We have to give it visibility because whatever reason, somewhere in between, what do you what do you feel about taking the work of this person who a lot of people think is problematic and talking about it? You mean here or anywhere? Here or anywhere. Um usually the only time that I read that guy is when it's been forwarded to me through email. He's one of those writers, isn't he? He'll yeah. write something and people be like, oh, did you see what he wrote this yeah. time? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't seek him out. And we had this talk before. Um, it, we just got to wait him out. This man is not to be ignored, in my opinion, because he has institutional backing. It's not like we're right. going to his personal blog every week and just, you know, being nosy and, and all that stuff. He He's getting gigs with different types of publications and with different institutions. So he has the support. And because he has the support, I understand the wait him out thing. He's he's very old. But at the same time, the way of thinking, the approach to music is affirmed in right. all of the, the folks he collaborates with. So I think it's bigger than just waiting out this individual is making sure that folks understand the arts is not safe out here. The arts is not sweet out here. It's a lot of stuff being talked about within these so-called safe walls of Western classical music that that are not, you know, yeah. as benevolent as we like to think of the arts as being. The comment section on all of his, his stuff. <laughs> on his thing, yeah, is like the exact polar opposite of everything that I see mm -hmm. in my timeline. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm reading from thecritic.co.uk, an article by Norman Lebrecht titled Spare Us the Skin Tight Sonata. I can't stand this man. But anyway, let's read. It says, onto a stage bounds a young woman in a backless gown slid up to the hip or a micro dress cut an inch below the butt. That's right. I've turned into a fashion critic. And the moment these words appear, I shall come under a social media onslaught for committing the unforgivable male offense of reporting what a woman artist wears instead of how she plays. Okay, so he's acknowledging. Yes, he will. He, 
he's acknowledging <laughs> that and does it anyway. Yep. And that's why we have to make sure that we're never just letting these people live in the wings because they understand the ecosystem and they're like, I don't give a fuck about that. I'm going to say what I want. I don't care how problematic it is. Anyway, let me go on. Tap Yuja Wong into your phone and you'll get the full flaunty. Yes, under present rules of permitted speech, it is not supposed to affect our judgment of who she is and what she does. Well, let's breach that taboo and see what happens. I'm not going to sit here and read the whole thing, but long story short, mm -hmm. he's talking about Yuja Wong, world famous pianist, and having a problem with what she wears on stage. Yep. It's always something, I don't, I'm, I'm going to keep it real. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. What Yuja Wong wears has never, I've never thought about it. I've, 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 for, and maybe some folks think I'm blowing smoke. I have, honest to goddess, never thought about it. That has never crossed my mind. I, when, I, when I hear Yuja Wong's name, I, uh, I think about how fast she plays things. I think about her as young energy, um, inspired, you know, all, all of those all of those things. The, fi the fact that you can see her thigh on stage or that she wears clothing that is maybe more revealing than the long traditional concert gown, that has never passed my mind. So, you know, what, what, what is he talking about? Do you remember when they did this with Anne Sophie Mutter? I, I do not. The, dre actually. The, the dress that defied gravity. They said it was her yellow dress that she wore on her, on her uh, Mozart marathon I, release. I, I, I don't remember it. Uh, Ofra Harnoy, the cellist. She she took all sorts of slings and arrows. But if you want to bring up how Jean Yves Thibaudet has a sock habit, well, that's an interesting little tidbit to to add. A isn't sock it? habit. Yeah, he likes fancy socks. Oh, okay, okay. But that's cute, right? <laughs> right. The fancy socks are cute. I, I thought you were about to talk about where he puts the sock. Go I on. Have, no, I have no idea on that. <laughs> the socks are the ones that you can see by on his, his feet. feet. Okay. Right. And I heard, I heard the one. I, I didn't hear it was about you know the shoulder blades, the backless dress. I heard it was she was wearing sunglasses for the performance. And the, Yu Jawang was wearing sunglasses. Yeah, and that was the issue. And come to find out, which is none of anybody's damn business, she was detained at the airport. It was an, an emotional experience for her. She had a breakdown and her eyes swelled up. So if she walked out on stage and played with swollen eyes, she'd get hit for that. Mm -hmm. She walks out in sunglasses, she gets hit for that. A bully is going to hit you for anything they can find. I mean, why isn't performing y'all's beloved Mozart, Tchaikovsky, rock, whatever, she does it at the top level, at the highest level. She's not a, a, a world-famous concert pianist because she shows a little skin. She has to be able to play the damn music to get in the door in the first place. And she's doing it at a top level. So why is that not enough? Why are we sitting here talking about what this woman is wearing? And, you know, I have to pull back a little bit. I, you know, I said I don't understand, you know, what, what is Norma Lebrecht thinking? I, I did a quick uh, little YouTube search here to, to see what music of hers we're going to uh, transition out with. And one of the first uh, uh, titles here is Skimpy Tchaikovsky. So I guess I guess y'all men do be be uh, look. Y'all are problematic, Scott. <laughs> you, you straight men. <laughs> I said it. I said it. Why do you think I live like a hermit? <laughs> Where are you guffawing at? As I was talking to The last line, the last line of this article. If Yu Zha Wang were to strip everything right down to the music, I have a feeling she could be a sensation. She's a sensation now. <laughs> She's a sensation now, Norman. What in the hell are you talking about? Uh, anyway, uh, 
I, I brought this up again. The conversation, I think, is not squarely about Yuja Wong and what she chooses with her autonomous body that she has the rights to do whatever with. Okay, the conversation that I want to have isn't necessarily about that. It's just the fact that these little inklings, these these little uh, stabs at these women artists and dare I say, in this case, a woman of color, it's 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 seeming to be more and more and more common. The more brave people are feeling about speaking out this nonsense and, and being problematic, the more we're seeing it. And it, would be and, one, and it doesn't not exist. So again, back to my original point, we have to talk about these things and we have to give light to these things because these are real sentiments that really exist within our so-called classical spaces. Comment sections always full. Mm -hmm. It's not like Norman out here, the only one. And it, it, it has to, we have to speak to it and we cannot ignore it because ignoring the sleeping monster is how we had our last president. Hey. It wouldn't Gosh. be nothing. It wouldn't be nothing for Norman Lebrecht or or one of his followers, someone who thinks exactly like he does, to become the next music director of this or CEO of this arts institution or president of this school of music or or whatever. That is very much a thing that could happen, mm. and I feel like people don't think about that, and that could impact hundreds, maybe thousands of musicians and music lovers. So we have to make sure that we we keep saying his name so that he doesn't just hop out somewhere right. and we don't know who he is and all the bullshit he speaks. If, if Yuja was not able to play at the level that she does, that's one thing. And, and I'm going to, I'll step out here and say that if I was a professional musician of some kind, and if I had a shape, to show off, you bet your ass that I would be wearing clothes. Look at Milos Karadalic, comes out with a, a Scott, shirt unbuttoned to his navel. Scott said, you'd be saying all of his stuff. I'm not, all, I'm not saying all of it, but I would be doing some advertising. If I had it to flaunt, I would flaunt it. Sure, on top of your musicianship. Yes. Again, it's not like she's out here half-assing this music. Yes. She's playing it at the a top level. So shout out to you, Juwong. I'm sure she's used to it by now. Um, I understand how difficult it can be to have your name thrown around and all. I that want to stuff, see Alfred but... Brendel play in high heels. <laughs> I don't. Do I know Alfred Brendel? Oh, he um, name your. I want to see Long Long play in high heels. Okay, why, why, why? What, what, what are you saying? Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you think it'd be tougher to pedal in? in oh, the I high see. Heels okay, than, I, I, than thought, in... I thought you personally wanted to see them in high heels or something. <laughs> you, you, you said why not? Well, what, what you're saying is that. Yeah, I, I get what That's you're saying. another Dri level. Driving a car. I couldn't imagine driving a stick in heels either. There you, you go. Know, like using those pedals. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, as... as as Boy, I got kind of... <laughs> I got kind of worked up on well, that. Well, as, as, as I affirm... These white men are dangerous. <laughs> I'm sitting right here. Norm, Norman Lebrecht, we're watching you. We see you. And... If it's at You're all funny. in my power <laughs> and, and the folks who also do this work, you will never see a position of influence that has anything to do with a rising artist, an aspiring artist, damn any student. Because what you're thinking and the shit you put out there is pushing us years back into the past. Dare I say decades. I can't. He doesn't have anything else to write about but what this woman has on. How disrespectful. How embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for him. Pitiful. Pitiful. We're going to uh, transition out of this first movement and get into the second movement, where we're going to take the second ending with a Yuja Wong performance. I, I mentioned Ravel earlier mm -hmm. and, and uh, his uh, quote-unquote borrowing 
uh, jazz <laughs> in his uh, composition. So uh, a really great example of that is his piano concerto in G. Not the one hand, I almost said the one arm, not the one hand concerto, but the, you know, three movement uh, Ravel concerto. Really incredible work. Here's a bit of the last move, uh, a last, here's a bit of the ending of the uh, first movement of that concerto to get us into the second movement here. Wong with the Orchestra dell'Accademia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia. Wanted to make sure I gave them a shout out there. Listen, before we leave this, and then I'm done, okay? Do you agree, okay, that Norman Lebrecht and folks like Norman Lebrecht must be stopped? Yes. Okay. Are you going to get on your national platform and say, ladies and gentlemen, Norman Lebrecht must be stopped? Probably not. Okay, okay. And that's not me trying to call you out. That's me saying this is a platform where that conversation can happen and will happen. Yeah. You won't you won't hear that from uh, none of these radio hosts. You won't hear this from most of the other podcasters, but you're going to hear it here on Triloquy, okay? We have we we cannot let that sort of stuff fester in the wings. It just cannot. And we're here in the second movement. Where Scott and I are going to take the second ending where and talk about fester. a piece of <laughs> and talk about a piece of music that we've been repeating over and over all week. You wanted to uh return to um uh Elijah, Elijah Daniel Smith's music for the second movement. How about you take that away? I was just away? really I was really encouraged by that article because of how far he has come getting into the music game later, learning to read music later, mm -hmm. and being able to compose some interesting sounding music uh, as still a young man. I think that he's covered a lot of ground yeah. um, without having all of the trappings, you know, all of the, um, the leg ups that other people in the business have had. So hats off to him. But not only is he writing things for the concert hall, but also I think for more like the nightclub or, oh, yeah. or you know, the non-traditional concert space. Um, he's also doing multimedia projects. And so Come Clarity is one of the pieces that's on his website. And it kind of reminded me of a project that I'm working on with a couple of guys now. And it's it defies categorization to me. But I can tell you, if I were going to program this next piece of music with uh, a more familiar name from the canon, mm -hmm. Come Clarity, I think, would fit very well very well up against something by Claude Debussy. Um, uh, maybe, some, maybe a Chopin ballet piece, perhaps. Or um, t let's cap it off with uh, In C by Terry Riley. Sure. You know, something sure. like that. But it also comes with a video piece. So you can kind of daydream along with it as as you watch it. But it, it, it gives me hope. It encourages me that maybe there's something bigger out there even for me and my friends.
So do we have the vocabulary to speak to why this piece of music maybe is a bit more approachable than the saxophone quartet that we heard earlier? We can say it's more soothing or it's more gentle or whatever, but is is there something more to it? Maybe the feeling that it inspires or or the thoughts that it inspires. What do you what, what do you think about, you know, same composer, you know, same brilliant mind, same writing desk, two very different aesthetics, mm-hmm. one of which would broadly be considered more acceptable than the other? Mm. I mean, what, what do you what do you think about that conversation? That's a good question. Because when I first heard the saxophone piece, mm-hmm. Uh, I it was bracing. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Sure, but I stuck with it and I listened to it a couple times. And like I said, I found parts within it that began to be pleasing within mm-hmm. itself. Right. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Maybe it was the familiarity that I'm composing in this era of "Come Quietly" or yeah. uh, "Come Clarity," the name of this piece. I'm always uh, I'm I'm in this realm now. So perhaps that just spoke to me more directly. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really have an answer. I know how much you love a car ride. That piece of music reminds me of that. I, I see myself in the backseat. Somebody else is driving in the backseat, looking out the window. Maybe there's fields. We're in the middle of nowhere on a two-lane highway, and we're just vibing. You know, certainly with a little bit of the green stuff, That that's a really, really phenomenal piece of music. Slow sunset, tracing yeah. the headlights going by yeah. quick. Oh. So romantic. It makes me want to take a road trip now, especially with these uh, leaf, leaf colors looking so beautiful now and mm. and everything. Yeah, I, I, I'll, <laughs> I'll go back and listen to this when it's done. You know, it, it's hard to really draw that line between critic and really having the conversation when it comes to something as objective as music. Again, mm-hmm. I, I just feel like I need to repeat again. We can have honest conversations about the difference between music like this, Come Clarity, and uh, pieces like the saxophone uh, quartet we heard earlier. We can have those honest conversations and really dig into it. And I think that's our way. That discomfort is our way to transforming these uh, so-called classical spaces and really getting into the meat of why something might be more or less accessible mm. on first or or second listen. We ha- We have to do that. As audience members, we have to have the courage to step up and have those conversations. And I feel like composers need to have the courage to to be able to listen and to engage those conversations. And if they don't want to, that's fine. I'm not saying that a composer has to hear everything that uh, listeners say. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the music is being written to be heard and uh, written to be platformed in spaces. And I think if if we can dig into, you know, that discomfort, maybe this is a little jarring for a lot of audiences. Maybe this belongs here? How can we challenge certain audiences to hear certain things? I feel like that's our road to transforming these spaces, but we, we, we have to be open to those those trill conversations, there. if you will. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. And keep in mind that, uh, you know, at 51 years old, I've got this half of a lifetime of programming of what is music, what is pleasing, what is acceptable, yeah. drilled in. So I'm deprogramming myself in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for bringing that in. Thank and you again, for listening. I, I, <laughs> I look forward to uh, learning more about Elijah and all of his music. Really incredible stuff and really great to see uh, young and younger composers 
getting platforms in places like the Chicago Symphony. We talked yeah. about the Boston Symphony. Yeah. All right. Chicago is very diverse. You know, it's it's a very diverse population, except that orchestra. So <laughs> it's, it's it's good that okay. Yeah. No, I, am I lying? Okay. So it's it's good that we're 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 able to see these folks in those spaces. Maybe maybe the decolonization is coming. We just got to be honest enough to you know, speak to what issues are and, and to uncover things anyway. Yeah. All right. So uh, my second movement this week, I got to I got to return to Drake. So uh, I want to give a shout out and a huge thank you to Maestro Stephen Ramsey and everyone down at the Austin, Minnesota Symphony Orchestra. They have a McPhail Center down there for folks in Minnesota uh, know the McPhail Center for Music. There's a satellite uh, campus down in Austin where I had the opportunity to give Four presentations. I think I talked to over 600 kids this past uh, Friday, grades 7 through 12, about my work, about uh, the program uh, that I was a part of with the Austin Symphony playing those concertos and things. And then, you know, trying to inspire them to be critical and think about arts institutions and what they think about classical music. So um, in addition to, you know, bringing in some of the William Grant Still and a little bit of the Rossini, I arranged for bassoon and uh, electronics a tune by Drake. I wanted to, you know, be like, hello, fellow kids. I also, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but I am a Drake fan. People know that. So, but, so I'm not faking, but anyway, um, the song that I've been listening to over and over again for the past couple weeks, actually, and the tune that I arranged for the kids uh, is a, a Drake tune from his album, Take Care. It's called Shop For Me. I want to go through just a few of these opening lyrics, first and foremost. <laughs> well, before I do that, the first time I... Um, shared this with you. The first time I, I shared this uh, track with you, I remember one of the first questions you asked is, do you think they put a lot of effects or whatever on, on Drake's singing voice? And just as an mm, aside, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about Hove as, as, you know, the greatest, the goat Drake is up there. You know, he's, he's a lot of the younger generation's goat. And I think a reason for that is not only can he deliver real rap and really engage the, the, the true hip hop fans in that way, he also has a beautiful singing voice, which makes him one of these cheat codes, as they say, one sure. of these multi-talents. So. But I'm not familiar with his catalog, and that can be a sticky situation. Sure. And I, do, I didn't want to be disrespectful, which is why I asked, do you, how much do you think they put on Let, Let's listen to a little bit of his singing here. I can see it in your eyes, you're angry. Regret got shit on what you're feeling now. Mad cause like me. Oh, you mad cause nobody ever did it like me All the care I would take, all the love that we made Now you're trying to find somebody to replace what I gave to you It's a shame you didn't keep it, Alicia, Katia I know that you gon' hear this, I'm the man Yeah, I said it He it's is the man, man. He really does it. The album is really incredible And as you can kind of hear in some of those lyrics He's getting into love life Mm -hmm. issues you know and mm -hmm. all that but i like the spirit of it there you know he's from my I, I like listening to the song we all have that breakup that we think about my breakup that still makes me a little angry isn't with an individual it's with an organization mm -hmm. but anyway when i hear language like you know you're mad because uh nobody else did it like me or you know that swag you got or that conversation uh that you're good at having or whatever you know you got that from me uh i'm i'm the man i'm i'm the shit 
out here. I made it. That's what he gets into later uh, in that singing verse. I'm out here making it. And and you over here doing that. I, I like that energy. I like mm. that feeling. So that's what got me to the song originally anyway. So when it comes time for me to get ready to do these presentations down in Austin, uh, as you know, one way that I've always kept my face on my instrument, you know, to, to get my time in, to make sure I'm maintaining my chops is just to take something that I'm listening to and to play along with it. You know, and, and this song lays so beautifully in the tenor range on the bassoon. That's why I decided to uh, arrange it. I, I think I put a little bit of it uh, on my on my Instagram uh, that the kids got a kick out of it. You know, I was surprised it was some of the younger kids, the seventh and eighth graders that were kind of quietly, politely singing along as uh. I was as I was playing it, which made me feel good. I'm like, OK, so they actually hear what I'm trying to do. All of that just to show them that when we talk about classical music, we're allowed to talk about music that we care about or that engages us or or is contemporary. And, you know, there are lots of folks out there making these arrangements. I think ultimately we can recognize things like R&B and hip hop as American classical as it is. Mm -hmm. With that being said, I think some of this music is just so beautiful and so um, masterfully written that it works really well on instruments. So um, I wanted to also share uh, a piano arrangement of this tune for us to take a little bit of a listen to. This is a, a piano cover by someone on YouTube called The Theorist. And I feel like maybe we've shared some of his music before, but he's he is an incredible arranger. He puts all sorts of tunes um, that are on the radio, that are hot on piano. And, uh, and Shot For Me was one of them way back when the album came out. This video was published back in 2012. So anyway, here's a little bit of uh, a piano version of Drake's Shot For Me for us to enjoy a little bit of. music. So if I'm hearing it on the piano, if I'm hearing it directly from Drake, or if I'm hearing it in, in any other form, a really incredible composition is an incredible composition. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the kids to understand that. And I want y'all to understand that. And I think uh, the theorist has gotten even better over the years. That's not his best arrangement. Mm -hmm. One uh, Something I've returned to over and over again is his treatment of uh, Tyler, the creator's earthquake. Right. That's really incredible. He has all sorts of stuff out there. You already uh, established that some of, you know, the more traditional radio listeners are not here for the sing, 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 or none, <laughs> none of that yep. jazz. You think they'll call about that? I mean, somebody who doesn't know Drake at all, but just hears those sounds. Surely that wouldn't inspire a phone call, or maybe it would. I don't know. Um, Terry Riley, not uh, uh, the host of From the Top. Christopher O'Reilly. Yeah, Christopher O'Reilly hosts From the Top, and he put out a piano solo version of Radiohead covers. 
Oh yeah, I used and to that, play those all the time. That did real well. Yeah, um, and shout out to uh, Melanie Dodson, my my first radio uh, colleague. You know, she played those on the. She introduced me to that, right. not only on the radio, but by playing them. She bought the book and she liked to play them. You know, oh, at events sure. and, w- and when I would go to uh, her house. Shout out to Melanie, um, and 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 shout out to everyone who's pushing in this way. Again, like I said, I think these compositions, the way they exist, deserve space in these classical structures, but even reframing them to be more palatable, uh, I'll say, for a typical classical listener, I think there's something to be said there as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in, incredible music. And again, shout out to everyone down in Austin. I visited the Spam Museum. I'm wearing my Spam hoodie right now. Actually learned a lot about good old Spam. <laughs> good and, old. And, and, it, and it solidified the fact that I'm not eating it, but... <laughs> <laughs> no shade. Um, so we're here <laughs> getting ready to uh, go into the third movement. Today's guest is OZ Cargyle. I'm so excited to have uh, OZ Cargyle on the show because it might have even been season one or maybe early season two. You brought in a piece of music for the second movement called yeah. Creation of the Universe. This is season two. By, yeah. o- by OZ Cargyle. And I've been listening to it ever since. And we actually uh, begin our conversation there. I asked him about the significance of this piece of music when it comes to his career. He talks about how huge it was for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra to record it when they did and how that sparked off his career. And we get all into all sorts of stuff. So here's a bit of Creation of the Universe by Ozzy Cargyle. And here's my conversation with him. of the universe and me coming to understand who I am as a composer. Uh, I worked the creation of the universe at 22 years old. Oh, wow. I'm now 40 years old. Um, I've been able to accomplish quite, you know, some significant things in my career. But in terms of the realization of my musical style and what really makes me what I am in contrast to so much of what I've learned and seen out here, um, Creation of the universe gave me the understanding that I had it then. Mm. And so in creating that universe and understanding that so much of my musical style comes from the influences that I had at the time, that's what I was developing as a composer. It really laid the foundation for, you know, a self-discovery in music. Mm -hmm. Um, Also sort of a a validation of, of, uh, um, you know, really what I was about at the time. Yeah. And you you speak to developing as a composer and it it makes me think about developing as a human being. I know that that's something yeah. that you speak to. You know, it's not just your art that has to develop your own self. Your person has to develop toward your art. I wonder if you could speak more to that idea. Well, yeah. So creation of the universe, too, it has a very spiritual component at the time. Um, I was a Christian and trying to reconcile religion and science. I've since, you know, dropped the religion, mm. and, but I haven't dropped the spirituality. So it's not this cold sort of scientific idea around the universe. You know, I, I, I understand the universe to be a conscious 
being to mm. be, you know, as some describe it, universal consciousness, if you want to call it information, energy, you know, we got a lot of nice terms for it. Um, but there's an organization to who we are. And a lot of what we become, you know, as, 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 as beings on this planet has to do with how we align, you know, just like in music, mm-hmm. you know, all the horns and the strings together. And so creation of the universe is such a complicated piece because there are parts where you know, there's a lot going on, but you still get this sense of order, that there is a direction to even uh, what could be heard of as, as chaotic. But there's a beauty in that chaos. It's kind of like the butterfly effect, if you, if you want to use that reference. Yeah. So, um, you know, me as a person evolving, you know, out of religion and into spirituality, me as a person um, coming to, to, to grapple with, you know, concepts like the universe and life and who we are uh, in a significant way that still honored the original concepts, the heart of that piece, which was to unify our understanding around these kind of things. We really are all from one source, okay? Yeah. We got to understand that part. <laughs> you know, it's so simple, it's so elemental, but it's hard because there are differences, you know? And, and that's the beauty also, that the diversity is not chaos. Mm-hmm. That there, there's an order to that as well, and there's something to be heard and learned in there that speaks to the greater whole. So, you know, the piece is just, is 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 me in a lot of ways. In my most woo-woo, as we say, in my most woo-woo moments, I think about how we are actually made of the same thing as the stars, even. It's not just, yes, you know, Grass Tyson says that. All yes. of that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, a big statement, though, especially for a black man, and I would even say a black man from Detroit, to speak to dropping religion. Is is that a, a journey of <laughs> yours that's done? Are you completely done with that conversation, or is there still development there? Yeah, I'm done with it. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, yeah. It, now granted, I had the conversation very intelligently for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, on a lot of levels. I'm a Bible scholar. At one point, I was a minister. So, you know, I understand the depths of both sides of that argument. But I think particularly with regard to the way that Christianity was used uh, to subjugate us, you know, during slavery, during the transatlantic slave trade, like there's a history there um, that is so diabolical mm-hmm. that I, 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 I can't play with the idea that maybe there's some merit there. I think there are much better ways to, to approach spirituality. I think there are much better ways to approach the big questions of the universe. And, I, you know, as a Black man, I don't want to entertain something that has been used against me and and yes there is an affinity there for the and the singing and the church and the music and that's not what i'm talking about i'm not talking about us i'm talking about the mythology that Mm. that has us you know praying you know as as a means of addressing brutality when there are much more effective ways um for us to to be free yeah so uh you know i'm all about the liberation of our people and so on that front, I had to completely divorce myself from that, you know. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the liberation of people, because in the same way, in the same breath that we affirm a, a, a common origin, 
it's not common experiences that we all share, you know, despite all of us being made of that same star stuff or, you know, however the scientists describe that. How does the unique experience of Blackness play into your spirituality, into your uh, music making, again, when we consider this common origin? There's common origin, but not common experience. No, it's it's it, yes. There is a unique experience in being black, in being a black man. Um, the history there, and I think for me, particularly with regard to music, there's such a rich heritage of music. You know, even in the classics, when you want to go back to William Grant, still, you know, we have had a long lineage of creating great sounds. Beethoven. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, another we, great black yeah, composer. Yes, you know, so <laughs> we, so, so, so the, the the idea because music brings you close to that God power, right? It mm-hmm. brings you close to that understanding vibration and frequencies and the harmonicity with the dissonance and how it all plays into this beautiful game that we call life. So it's it's, it's sort of an architecture on a on a sonic level. That, that we've done it, even going back to the rhythms of Africa, we're always creating the patterns that mimic the rhythms of the universe. Um, so I feel, I feel, I feel the ancestors, man. I feel like, you know, it's, 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 it's been a profound experience to discover who we have been and how integrated our methods have been. Yep. I think there's a great heritage, you know, of music. Um, you know, and particularly in this country where, you know, we have longed for such opportunity to finally find that opportunity in the self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm seeing, you know, in, in Black America right now. We're we're having an awakening of ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're discovering things about ourselves that we kind of heard about and knew, but now are experiencing on, on, on these really dynamic levels and and you even see it in in our music so i feel a part of that you know that 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 and that experience does come out having had you know my partake in the struggle yeah when and we, having been affected by all those other things too so that that's a part of that equation right when we talk about self-discovery, this age of Black awakening, I think it also uncovers specific challenges when it comes to that awakening. So again, going back to this uh, piece of music, your magnum opus, opus, creation of the universe, this is a piece of music that was recorded by an ensemble that doesn't necessarily speak to us, to our communities. I know that the Detroit Symphony Orchestra has done some great things, you know, in in the past years. I used to play with them. You know, I, I got my orchestral start there. But at the same time, it seems that those doors of the concert hall are still a barrier to self-discovery for Black folk when it comes to things like orchestral composition and and contemporary music. I know it must have been very significant for you to have a world-class ensemble like that to record this piece of music, but it, it must create at least a bit of dissonance when you think about the barriers that, you know, the traditional orchestral ensemble represents to a lot of folks who look like us. Wow. Yes. So my story is very unique. I've always been able to navigate certain spaces from a young age. And I think in the world of intelligent Black men, you know, from a young age, I found myself in the company of people who could introduce me to opportunities. So having, you know, the choice simply perform my piece at such a young age was tremendous. 
I think the greatest barrier to you know black composers is finally hearing their music played by an orchestra mm. because it is expensive because you know bringing together musicians and and, and the ability to produce um you know it's, it's historically been a challenge you know we've had black ensembles and uh, we've had you know concert halls and that kind of thing but then when you get this 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 need from the outside to destroy that which we have built it's hard to maintain that legacy so mm -hmm. you know having the the the, the privilege of, of this hearing your, your piece play was tremendously powerful for me at that age. And I think it was one of the things that inspired me because you got to remember when I wrote Creation of the Universe, you know, I'm in the basement at home, you sure. know, in my college dorm room, some little small IBM computer, you know, with a little <laughs> bit of RAM and just, just the regular old general MIDI sounds. Yeah. Just yeah. my imagination saying this is what it, it should sound like. I heard the symphony first in my head, um, but being able to hear it in the orchestra was was profound. The irony was, though, when I when I returned to the Detroit Symphony after graduation mm -hmm. um, to see if I could get the piece which they had performed and recorded, you know, in the regular season, you know, there was a long list of excuses as to you know why that could happen at that time and it, it became more apparent to me than i think to one of the mistakes that we have made you know in the arts is only congratulating students hmm. if you're a student in the arts you can get a scholarship you can get an opportunity to to experience some amazing things because us to have faith in the, the booming of our culture and the promise of the youth and tomorrow, right? Yeah. But when that same student graduates and now he's just an adult and now he's just a regular man, you know, he's entering into this much larger society that doesn't have sort of the, the, uh, the, the protections of the, the academia. You know, he, he's, he's met with a different world. And I had to relearn my style of navigation. I had to, I had to find a different way. And 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 so, yeah, you know, I, I think it is important that those kind of doors aren't as open as they should be. But at the same time, you know, we've been, we've been benefited by technology. Yeah. The ability to synthesize, the ability to 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 remaster, the ability to to create orchestral sounds and to finally hear our music. And then that leads to opportunities, you know, whereas in the classical world, you have to go through sort of this, this introduction of persons, you know, in the film world, just create me a great sound. It doesn't necessarily have to be at the symphony on the stage or anything yeah. like that. It's just, here's my movie. Can you, can you, give, can you give me the vibes? Can you do that, <laughs> that, that mathematics? You know, take me back to the, the vibration aspect. And then you do that and then it creates the, the platform for you to get an orchestra. It creates the platform for you to create your own thing, um, which is, you know, I'm very proud to be um, the director of sound experience for this uh, uh, starting uh, media company, Enlight Media, that is focusing on Black, Indigenous, people of color films. Uh, we have a slate of over 20 films that we're, we're getting ready wow. to to uh, produce, it is it is so much that's that's going to happen, 
you know, and as, as a director in this program, I get an opportunity to um, create those opportunities, which have been historically withheld. We're going to have an orchestra. Yeah. You know, so th- this is this is that time. This is that time where now we're able to create our opportunities for ourselves. Being grateful for the opportunities that we forged, because like I said, it was important for the imagination. It was important to see that. Mm -hmm. Because what kept me going from 22 to where I am now was, you know, having heard that, having experienced that, having seen that, having known that option. So we can get more, you know, of our students to understand what that option really means. But once they come out of the, the safety net of academia, that option still exists for them as an adult in this society. It's interesting because academia, as you describe, is a, a safe place to an extent for students, but it's it's uh, regarded, at least from my perspective, as a minefield when it comes to the actual professors and the folks, you know, working in, <laughs> in academia trying to change things. But I, I think that's a that's a very interesting point you make about a lot of attention going to the younger folks and the support, you know, needing to continue throughout an, an artist's career. You, you you use the phrase, you know, uh, where you are now, very proud, very happy uh, about where you are now. I should mention that geographically, that place is not Detroit. It's Los Angeles. A lot of people That's go. Great. A lot of people go. You know, run into Los Angeles looking. You know, to kick off their acting career or modeling or, or or whatever they're doing. There's a lot of energy out there. A lot of competition out there. Do you uh, still stand behind your decision to move? Are you still happy that you made that <laughs> big two thousand mile drive across the country? Absolutely, absolutely. Um... It was one of the best decisions that I ever made, partially because it gave me a different view of the world. Remember mm. that the story about seeing it, seeing options. Yeah. You know, I heard a lot about Los Angeles. You know, I understood that it was a place where a lot of great things happened for artists. But, you know, the stigma was, you know, it's a dog eat dog world. Nobody gives, you know, about anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, stay here where you're at home, where it's safe, and da-da-da. The opportunities that I needed was not in Detroit. You know, I had maximized Detroit. Mm -hmm. I had the Detroit Symphony at 22, so... I mean, that's that's the thing. Where do you go from there? You know, in terms of that region, um, there's so many great symphonies out here. There's so many ensembles out here, and then there's musicianships to build symphonies out here. Um, so coming to this region put me just in the company of more people. And, and as a result of being in the company of these people, more opportunities came. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm very, very grateful for that portion. Um, and then too, I think socially, poli- socially politically, uh, this climate is much more what I am. It's a much more liberal okay. Uh, environment. I'm a same gender loving man. You know, you know, I get I, I get a lot more freedom and love here. Uh, unfortunately, Detroit was not exactly that space, you know, so I think it just improves all other areas of my life in terms of the see and the environment to be treated differently. Uh, the energy out here is the energy that you bring to it. You know, Los Angeles has that kind of magic. It kind of amplifies whatever you are. 
And so it, it wasn't long before I found my tribe. Yeah. You yeah. know, I've got friends who've moved out here since, you know, we're working together. Um, one of my great friends, Mario Sulukzana, uh, profound musician, uh, came out here. He moved out here a few months ago. So I see it creating opportunities for other people, and especially people of color. You know, that, that this is this is our time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if you if you if you're thinking about doing it, do it. <laughs> you know, you can do it. You can do it. Now it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. I did have my own set of challenges. Sure. You, know, I, you have to be smart about it. And you you gotta be serious about it, you know. If you you know, especially coming from Detroit, an environment where you do have a certain mentality around finance and money and that kind of thing. And then coming out here and it's a completely different, you know, just mindset. You know, you have to learn to take on the mindset of the region to really maximize the region, you know. And I think that does have benefits as well because you're always looking to raise your consciousness, right? Uh, You know, I'm I'm a student as well as a teacher. I want to learn. I want to see something different. You know, how else will we go to the moon and the stars to, you know, reclaim our birthright there if we're not able to, to see the stars and to be among the stars? And that's not to say that those those places don't exist in other parts of the of, of the world and the country. And, and of course, there's stars in Detroit because there's so much rich history there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the time comes to expand your horizons and try that new thing for yourself, follow that. That is a gift from the universe. Follow it. Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Charles. You know, the two of you moved out there yeah. together. I, I love yeah. how forward you are about, you know, your romantic life. It's, it's not something you keep private. I feel like it even comes through uh, some of the musical work you do. Is is there a musical significance uh, that you find in, in that relationship you have with your partner, considering how forward you are in talking about him? Yeah, so my relationship with Charles is quite profound because, you know, it is a romantic relationship, but it is also a soulmate relationship. Mm. You know, I think, you know, the exploration into consciousness, you know, because I, I love the big questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What is life? What is this experience? What is what is the science of it all? Or is there a science to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, we 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 really matched on that wavelength as well. We read the book together entitled The Loss of Consciousness. So that was a huge part of our journey. And, and part of it, you know, when you get consciousness and relationship mixed together, yeah. everything in the universe makes sense. Wow. You just see so much synchronicity that it becomes storybook-like. You know, our journey was, I'm from Detroit, you from Chicago, man, we want to get to L.A. (laughs) You know, so how do we do that? You know, how do we do that from where we were at that time? And with everything that we were overcoming in our own personal lives and with our families. So it became such a tremendous journey. We reflect on it, you know, like it is a hero's tale. Uh, and, And we've created a a a way of sharing that narrative, I think, in a fun and entertaining type of way. You know, we have a, 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 a game, video game series that we're, we're developing called The Majestic Increaser of My Strength, where we're like these superhero characters. And it, it actually, though, it's just more of a parable around our journey into consciousness coming from, you know, 
a much more limited mindset, but a mindset that that looked for more, that was just trying to get these answers and arriving to some answers and arriving to a place where we can share those answers. So musically, you know, we have a thing. You know, I've written a symphony, you know, uh, that that's beautiful. You know, we, we, we recorded, um, you know, there are several themes, you know, in this tale. There's a whole, you know, thing, you know, list of, of, of works that's coming out. Uh, and then there are other works that I've written that um, we're pairing with this, this uh, the creation of this game. Um, so including creation of the universe and some of my other works, you know, just as a, as a means of tearing, to telling this story. Um, and the VR experience. So, you know, it, I think we're, you know, we're certainly a couple in a romantic sense, but we're also just two guys, two bros, just like out to discover the universe. Yeah. And it's turned into something that I think that is just as, 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 as profound um, to finally find a friend, you know, who can, who speaks my language as a person. Right? Shout out to Charles. That's beautiful. Shout out to Charles. <laughs> when you, when you mentioned the the video game and, you know, uh, you and he are, are superheroes, it just makes me think about the idea of Afrofuturism, Afrofiction, yeah. Afro-imagination. How important do you think that is when it comes to facing the real world. How how important is imagining oneself as a superhero mm-hmm. when we deal with the real life everyday challenges that we don't have laser eyes to fix or X-ray vision or or, or whatever? Well, okay, so well, let's look at let's look at it from the from the Afrofuturistic perspective, though. Like, you know, are we going to recreate our Egyptian paradise of advanced technology and civilization? Mm. You know, I think we should aspire to do things that are superhero-like. I think when you look at where the superhero concept has achieved its, its greatest prominence in the films, you look at Marvel, um, DC, mm-hmm. where you see yourself constantly overcoming and profoundly, immensely amazing ways, and then how that parallels to the dominance of your society. You know, if we want to achieve the same level of prowess and what we know we can achieve, we have to show ourselves as in these places where we overcome and more likely than not, reality will mirror the fiction. You know, I remember when we used to watch Star Trek back in the day, Next Generation, you know, mm-hmm. at night, late watching and looking at the little, the, 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 the tricorders that they had where you would read, that's a cell phone. Yeah. We get those. You're now. right. Yeah. <laughs> now, where did, where, you know, and there, you know, the documentaries that talk about the influence of Star Trek on society. So I, I believe if we find ways to show ourselves with powers and abilities that it might just inspire someone among us to be like, you know, actually, if we take this little bit of science together and this conjecture here and see if we can get a proof on this, maybe we can do something that is even beyond what we feel is possible right now. You know, we might discover something akin to the next version of electromagnetic radiation. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine what that discovery was for humanity. You know, but who knows what else is in the universe? I think we have a lot more to learn. So let's inspire with the imagery that we that we show with each other. 
I, I love how you're so good at always bringing the conversation to space. So the stars, it's like your 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 mind is is it can't be held by the atmosphere. But I I am gonna bring us you know proverbially back down to earth. You know, in your uh, away from music specifically, in your social media and the other things you put out, you're pretty unapologetic and not apolitical when it comes to your perspective on issues on the world. You know, you you aren't afraid to really say things the way you see them. I wonder what you want the classical, the so-called classical industry, the composition industry or community to engage more directly in the way that you engage things directly. I know you've uh, talked about who you aren't voting for next presidential cycle, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. I know that in the arts, we tend to sort of try to veer away from political conversations or socioeconomic conversations that can be a little spiky, a little uncomfortable. But I, again, I wonder if you can speak to uh, things that you wish the industry would have the courage to just face head on. Wow. What should the industry face head on? I think, first of all, we need to face the history. Mm. Let's just face it. We have a tremendous history of amazing Black talent, which has, in certain parts, thrived, um, but in other parts, just being repressed. And that is the thing that I don't think the entertainment industry has finally grappled with. You know, and I think... You know, we do get a, a, a pass because music and the arts kind of bring us together in a, in a much more natural way. So we can kind of gloss over it. We mm -hmm. can we can laugh at the problem sometimes or we can just dance the problem. We can use art to express the angst there without actually having to have a literal conversation. But at this point, we have to have the literal conversation. Yeah because the rhetoric outside of the industry is so fever pitch, you know, we would be oblivious to think that the concert hall is not affected by the patrons coming in from the outside. Mm -hmm. You know, so who is the audience right now? What are, how are we gonna use the power of music to really change the world if we can't talk about racism, if we can't talk about systemic racism, if we can't talk about, everything that needs to be talked about. And I think particularly for Blacks in the classical arts, because we've worked so hard in terms of our musicianship. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we were promised when we were those great young scholars, what that work ethic would achieve and how we would become respected for what we've been able to do only to, to still be facing barriers that I think would actually solve and resolve if we just had basic conversations with boards, basic conversations with music directors. Why don't you have Black composers in your regular season? Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't know any now, but there are several databases now, you know, and I think to, it's not just a conversation towards, you know, white society in terms of their influence in the classical arts, but it's also a conversation to, to black society in terms of now, are we still going to be waiting for those symbols of prestige, though? Do we even need to have our, our stuff played by those orchestras if they're not? In 2021, you know, I got my Star Trek 
machine yeah but i don't have equity like Ooh, what listen. <laughs> you know come on now like it's time for humanity to evolve so you know i think we we would do us this ourselves a disservice to just wait for them to change without us making a a, a much more systemic effort to to build um the structures that provide us with our, our the same opportunities and creating the new prestige around that, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a word right there. We have rovers on Mars, but we still can't hardly find black composers on the programs. Of these you know what I'm saying? I, I just, I, I'm too, so I'm too far into the future to kind of act like there's not a certain level of insanity to the logic of that. Yeah. I mean, come on, we're, we, we're more intelligent than this. It's like, and it's I, like, I want. Um, I want yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's like Kanye said, I'm living in the future, so the present is my past. <laughs> okay, yes, yes. So, you know, with that level of intelligence, you know, I think the only way that we, 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 we achieve that in society generally is we have to be bold around the conversation. And that means we can no longer afford to mince words. And, the, and these words, these words are not words of hate. They don't have to be words of contention. They don't have to be words of condemnation. They just have to be words of truth. And truth can be uncomfortable, but the ability to face that discomfort in a mature way and with the intelligence that I, I, I believe a, a, a significant portion or at least enough of us possess, you know, let us start leading the conversation. Yeah. I mean, you we know, are the experts on being a racialized people in this country, right? You know, let, us, let, us, let, us, let us start leading the conversation. And I think we did see that, you know, during the protests of 2020, I think that there has been a great awakening in, in, in Black culture. I do see much more intelligent conversations, much more critical thinking, you know, among us. And I do see us building. So I'm not talking about something like something we should do and that we're not doing. We're doing it. But let us now look out to see that we're doing it and let us now bring those efforts together. Yeah. Yeah. How can folks uh, learn more about you, find out more about your work and reach out if they want to do that? Just go to my website, ozicargile.com. That's O-Z-I-E-C-A-R-G-I-L-E.com. And uh, you'll find me on, on, on Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. It's ozicargile Twitter. So if you type that in, you'll, you'll get me there too. Beautiful. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we're going to uh, outro. We're going to phase out of this conversation with a tune from The Wiz, Believe in Yourself. Oh, I wa- <laughs> wow. <laughs> I wonder if you can speak to the significance of that tune to your life experience, to your development. And what's the message from that song that you want other folks to be able to pull from it? Wow. So many great Black artists behind that tune that I learned at such a young age. It was played at my graduation. Um, believe in Yourself really means that trust that there is some aspect of you that is whole and complete and correct from just who you are and follow that voice because that voice if you are sincere about truly reaching your goals will guide you to it 
You may have to learn, but believe in yourself right from the start. Believe in the magic right there in your heart. And believe in yourself, not just because I told you to, you know, like get into the understanding that you are on a journey and you're responsible for that journey. And as part of that responsibility, you must have confidence that you can get there. And that, that's, that's what they If you believe in yourself, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in yourself as I believe in you. Shout out to shout out to Diana Ross. I mean been out here bodying it for decades now. She did. Ooh, goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Listening to that when you're in the right mood or maybe even the wrong mood, I think that'll <laughs> pull you out when you believe in yourself. Diana Ross from The Wiz. Ooh, shout out to that performance and shout out to Ozzy Cargill. I appreciate uh, the fact that he uh, always brings, uh, he, when he has the opportunity to talk about the important place that that tune has had in his life and his development, he brings it up. And and it, it brought me back to the Wiz. Mm, so, you mm-hmm. know, shout out to Ozzy Cargill and, and huge uh, thanks to him for spending the time with me. Of the of the straw man, the the tin man and the lion, <laughs> or Dorothy, which one <laughs> who, who who do you uh identify with most? Do you do you need a brain? Do you need a heart? Do you need courage? Or do you need to sit at home? <laughs> like maybe she should have. <laughs> no, it was all a dream. I get it. But have you have you ever thought about that? Which one you're most likely to be? Physically, I'm the scarecrow. <laughs> but, but emotionally. <laughs> no, I, I think that I could use more courage. More yeah. courage. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I could be Bert Lahr. I've, I've always thought of myself as uh, more of the Tin Man. Have you? Because I don't care about a lot of y'all. I'm just joking. <laughs> hey. No, I care about everybody, but it's the music part. Mm. See, they need to see if if there was like a classical music version or, or whatever of uh, of uh, the Wizard of Oz, the Wiz, whatever. I think I would be the one who, who needs the heart because I feel like I have the brains. And if any motherfucker out here got courage, it's me, you know, <laughs> especially the, the shit I talk on, on these microphones sometimes. Right. So I guess maybe it's the heart or maybe maybe I'm Dorothy just doing too much. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to be Toto and shut up. <laughs> uh, before we got into the trilogy, the fourth movement, I wanted to ask, you know, again, speaking to believing in yourself, uh, back to the downbeat, you know, Hove talking about he's the greatest, you know, this idea of of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to, to do the work that you do away here from Triloquy as a you know national radio host and all of that other stuff. Where do you draw the confidence that your job needs from? Is it music? Do you have a playlist when you're on your way to work? Do you get really excited about certain pieces of music that you get to write a break for and share with the national audience? Where does the confidence come from? Right now, all of my energy is going into just trying to make things relevant. Mm. Um, so maybe that the, duty purpose it's, is where it comes from. It, it is there, there, there's a larger calling, right? And I, I have to, I have to remind myself of what I'm pushing toward. Mm-hmm. And damn, it's hard to, and it's hard to lose focus from that sometimes. Sometimes when we're our most emotional, our most sad, our most happy, our most whatever, 
we can lose focus on what the actual goal is. And that's something that I'm constantly thinking about. And it evolves week to week, month to month again, to the conversation of uh, the music by um, Elijah, Elijah Daniel Smith. Mm -hmm. There's a day, especially in my early programming days when, you know, the weirder, the better. And y'all just need to deal with it. Okay. Now, I think more along the lines of, well, what is the point? What is the overall goal? And if we're going to decolonize these spaces, transform these spaces, we got to think about the path and not just doing it right now. So, uh, so you know, and you know how much I hate the idea of wait or, you know, just give it time or, or any of that stuff. But at the same time, we, we got we to gotta stay focused on our own personal goals and missions and, and let that drive us. That's what drives me anyway. All right. Uh, we're getting in here uh, into the fourth movement. Uh, we usually get into it by listening to some sort of trill from the repertoire. So uh, what I wanted to share this week. So again, um, thank you to everyone down in Austin for having me. In addition to playing the William Grant Still songs, I uh, played the Rossini Concerto. is written in 1844, but discovered, quote unquote, discovered in 1998. Mm. So, you know, still relatively Whoa. new to the repertoire. A lot of bassoonists don't know it. Um, in my own efforts to, excuse me, put people on to music that they may not know, I, you know, I consider this a part of that. We can even go into the European canon and say, oh, well, we haven't heard this a kajillion times or it's so uh, it's newly discovered. Let's give this a platform. So it was a personal challenge for sure for me to spend all of the time practicing and practicing. I mean, just countless hours, you know, getting ready for a concerto. I'm so glad that it's done because it feels like a weight lifted off of me. But I wanted to give a shout out um, to the bassoonist Yako Luoma. I know his name has come across uh, some of your playlists because they certainly used to come across mine, but uh, he's a really incredible bassoonist who recorded the Yo, uh, the Rossini concerto with the Tapiola Sinfonietta mm. and I, that, that recording helped me a lot. That recording gave me sort of the frame for what I wanted to do, just an idea of what the orchestra part is, because I can't practice, you know, the whole orchestra part right. and listen to that. So th this, this recording played a huge role in my preparation. And the second movement has some particularly beautiful trills that we'll use to get into the final movement today. I space my trills out a little longer than he does, but again, oh, did you? He 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 does it. He does it beautifully there, and we we need recordings. Recordings are a huge part of not only the experience for listeners who might not go into the concert hall. Recordings are a key ingredient, a prime ingredient in preparing to play this music, especially music that is relatively new to us or is it performed everywhere. I don't know a professional musician who doesn't listen to recordings. So shout out to all of the uh, recording artists out there. Shout out to Yako Luoma, bassoonist, who did his part in helping me prepare my own concerto. All right, we're here uh, in the fourth movement. We are running long as we are. We, we had a short one last week, a relatively short one last week, but we'll, I'll, I'll try to blow us through these trills relatively quickly. So first and foremost, all right, 
We're talking about Alec Baldwin a lot out mm. in the in the field. If you hadn't heard, long story short, he shot a gun that he thought was a prop and it ended up having a live round in it and a woman lost her life. Okay, this week I'm going to make the triloquy photo, a picture of me on set as a burglar <laughs> and, a, and a murderer. I, was, I, I used to do TV uh, back a, a different life ago anyway. The uh, the director on set, the prop manager, it was like four people who had to like sit down with me and give me a complete rundown of this weapon that couldn't even hold bullets. It wasn't even a real gun. It mm -hmm. shot air, but they needed to show me, okay, there are no bullets in this. It's still unsafe to point it at someone's face, da, da, da. you know, so all of this stuff, it was, it would have been impossible for me to shoot a live round with that weapon because everything was laid out. The gun was dissected. You know, there was a whole process. Okay. And this is on a, a, a TV one murder mystery show. Nothing that uh, Alec Baldwin would be close to. Help me understand why all of this didn't happen in that case. A woman is dead. A woman is dead. You heard that they found like many, many live rounds on that set. Yeah. Like just yeah. all over. So it sounds to me, and, and this is just what I've heard, it sounds to me like the armorer was not organized. Did have not you, have his hand, her, his or her hand have on. You, have you ever dealt with weapons in theater? Have you ever had to hold a gun? On a two, fake one or? Yeah, on two occasions. Well, what was the process of, of safety? there if you can remember the hammer was filed off and all of the chambers were filled with lead so it was it was all for looks oh so it couldn't it physically could not you, shoot you could if you could have if you could have gotten a bullet into one of the chambers the the hammer was filed off so it wouldn't have mm. struck it was it was just a it was it was quite literally a hunk of iron is there ever in your opinion a reason i shouldn't laugh is there a reason to have an actual gun on a set ever is is there a reason for it i'm not if i look at a like movie a gun, i'm not gun? i'm not uh, looking at a, a gun that can kill a woman i'm not looking at serial numbers or if it's a real thing as a as a tv viewer as a movie viewer i don't i don't care how authentic the prop looks especially if it's dangerous i mean is there is there a reason for an actual gun to be on any set movie play anything in your opinion i well, don't think so probably if you're trying to get the fire that comes you know the the flare okay that comes off of you know i'm thinking of guy Ritchie films there's always like this huge thing of fire that comes out the end of the guns that you know desert eagle 5.0 in the movie snatch uh all i know all all i know is that there is supposed to be a process. Uh, guns of varying functionality are used for different shots for different reasons. I don't know what they are, but it got boogered up here, didn't it? Well, rest in peace to Helena Hutchins. She isn't here to have this conversation anymore. She's, she's not here to do any of this. And I'm bringing it up because I'm thinking about that word perfection, words like excellence that we toss around in classical music. Okay. We need to have the energy to really do our jobs to the 110th percent and, and at all times. A woman is dead because somebody did not do that, okay? And not everything, certainly not in the arts, is life or death, but... I'm sure this person, th those uh, those prop people, whoever, right. I'm sure they didn't view their jobs as life or death either. And yeah. look what happened. Yeah. Look what happened. I uh, I was going to play Alec Baldwin's response. He's finally spoken out. I'll, I'll link the article, but shout out to him as well, because it, he must be going through it. I can't imagine the guilt, 
the the nightmares, much less the fucking press mm. following you everywhere, following a tragedy like this. So I, I I can't imagine. I can't imagine. We have to be careful in the arts, certainly the theater arts. Maybe somebody is going to stage, I don't know, Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale. There's a gun in that. I, I believe there's a gun in that. You know, so it, so the same thing could happen. Mm. So we, we need to pay more attention and we need to take our jobs more seriously because th- w- w- this isn't a thing. I, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, one, one more quick trill since we're running late. So Dell put me on to this. I'm reading from Washington Post. Headline, J Balvin apologizes after music video depicted him walking black women on leashes. First of all, folks who don't know J Balvin, he's a reggaeton artist. I know him. Most of the world knows him because he collaborated with Beyonce on a tune called Mi Gente. We love international Beyonce. Mm. Um, And J Balvin has been riding on that fame, that notoriety, and he fucked up. Before, Before I get into this, you've seen this in real life. No, yeah. You've seen this in real life. Talk talk to us. I went into Menards, and for people who don't know what a Menards Cause, cause is. Because I sure didn't before it I is moved a, here. It is a regional hardware store, like super hardware store. And I'm going in there minding my own damn business. <laughs> per usual. <laughs> and I look up and I see a white man in a black trench coat that went down to about his knees. He had a black fedora on. He sort of looked like the Babadook before the Babadook put his makeup on. Okay. And he had a woman on a leash. A black woman? Yes. In, yep. Now, uh, I I did not say anything. I didn't, because I was flabbergasted, number one. I didn't, I didn't completely understand. <laughs> you were like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I didn't quite understand what I was seeing. And am I really seeing this? Oh, no, I'm really seeing this. And immediately I had to, I had to put up my hands like this, this is a dominance thing. This is a sex thing. This doesn't include me. This, I don't, I don't need to be in this. But that's my thing. Does it not include you? Does it not include the public if they're, if they're marching around like this in public? I feel like that must be a part of the kink. Maybe, but I was not prepared to deal with it. In the moment. And neither was Jay Balvin. <laughs> it says here, Jay Balvin apologized early this week for a music video that featured black people whose facial features were altered to make them look like dogs, including two black women who are depicted as being walked on a leash by the reggaeton star. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, go down here. It says the singer's mother, who told a Colombian news program that the video prompted her to call her son to ask, where is the Josecito that I know? Even Jay Balvin's mom was like, child, what in the hell are you doing? And what? in the world are you thinking? Bal- is, I'm going to continue here a little bit. Balvin's apology posted in his Instagram stories on Sunday arrived roughly a week after the video quietly disappeared from YouTube. He says, I want to say sorry to whomever felt offended, especially women and the black community. That's not who I am. I'm about tolerance, love, inclusivity. I'm done with the apologies. I'm done with the apologies. What do you mean that's not who you are? You sat here and had craft services, probably trailers, cameramen, a whole set, all of this money that goes into this nonsense of you walking a black woman on a leash, black women on leashes. It's a real thing in the real world that I feel like is, I'm I'm not going to give J Balvin all of the blame for this being a thing because maybe the white man in Menards that you saw has never heard of J Balvin, but Artists, folks, uh, folks with platforms have the responsibility to think and to understand what the impact of this could be. I can't. 
I can't. I'm not here to kink shame. I'm not here to tell anybody that what you're doing is wrong. But if I see a white man, anybody, but especially a white man, I'll say it, walking a black woman on a leash, he going to radar ready for his leash or something. No. <laughs> um, I, I'm, he's, they're going to know. They're going to know that I have a problem with that. And if that's me uh, butting in where I shouldn't or trying to interrupt their little thing, whatever, but it's obviously inappropriate for most people. If he took the whole thing, it's some, it's some wild stuff on YouTube, on the internet. That was taken off because there's an obvious problem with that, right? Yes. We 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 gotta we gotta have we gotta have the courage, and I know I'm armchair uh, quarterback in here, okay? Because who knows what I if if the man is six six and two hundred or something pounds, you know I'm not gonna try to fight the man or nothing or, or start some shit. But oh, this woman could have taken him. Oh, the woman could have taken oh, him. Oh yeah. Oh well, then maybe. Oh, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, if you're thinking about walking your uh, significant other, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. But especially, I don't like the power dynamic of a white man walking a black woman on a leash, okay? I don't like that. If you're thinking about that, if you think that's okay, whatever, we're all entitled to our opinions. I think it was interesting for you to tell that story and for this to come out. Um, maybe it's going to be a growing thing. We're going to see more of it. If, if if I'm not here one of these Mondays, if Triloquy does not come out, I guess I went to jail or something because I picked uh, a fight with somebody on on a leash. But we we got to do better. We got to do better. I should have kicked him. And then he could have yelled, oh, I've been kicked in Menards. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, we're, we're, we're running out of time. We're not, we're not going to get into it this week, but I'm just going to mention, I'm going to include in the description, January 6th protest organizers say they participated in dozens of planning meetings with members of Congress and White House staff. There's also the issue of Kyle Rittenhouse's judge talking about the folks that he killed couldn't be considered victims. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of bullshit out here. It's a lot of crazy folks. These white men will uh, uh, have black women on leashes. They'll uh, bend the law for murderers. They will even help plan a damn insurrection. We have the names. We have the names, and they are still working their jobs. Do y'all think that these people, these problematic ideas, don't have key spots in our conservatories, in our orchestras, in our radio stations? If it's there, if it's in the government, if it's if it's in the law, it's in our arts institutions. And we have to realize that. We have to admit that to ourselves, have the courage to challenge it, to have these conversations, and to change the space, to transform classical music, to decolonize it. Here's to freedom. I'll see y'all next week. 